Welcome to Explore History's first podcast on World War II. I'm Dr. Scott McLean, and I'll be taking you on this little journey. The following podcast is based upon a manuscript I picked up at a market in 2005 for the princely sum of £3.50. It is 85 type pages and was written by an officer serving in the 1st Cavalry Division. The writer named Stuart created the following story based upon the many hundreds of letters he wrote to his friends and family while on active service. The 1st Cavalry Division, which was the only cavalry division in the British Army in World War II, left Britain in January of 1940 for Palestine. Here it would serve as a garrison force before taking part in the occupation of Baghdad. After being converted into the 10th Armored Division, it saw significant action, including the Battle of El Alamein. As a source of history, it has its strengths and weaknesses. The author notes that it has been written to look like the original letters, but largely based upon memory. It might, quote, lose much of its value. However, his approach allows for greater continuity and depth of description of the events and conditions he experienced. It also, as he states in the preface, allowed him to put what he experienced into the broader context of the war, a context unavailable to him at the time. This is particularly true in the closing pages of the manuscript, where he reflects on the kind of Britain he hoped would emerge from the war, the influence of America on British culture. Like Churchill, Stuart recognized that America was the new rising power in the world, and one with which the British would do well to foster a, quote, special relationship with. He speaks of the growing desire among many for a fair society, a desire which led to the formation of the welfare state in the immediate post-war years. He was clearly affected by his interaction with the Americans and others, and this shaped his view of what he wanted to see his Britain become, to see Britain's future be like. Stuart provides his own unique perspective on the war through the events he experienced, the conversations he had with others fighting against fascism, and the impact of leaving Britain to not only fight in foreign lands, but experience the cultures and day-to-day life with which he was confronted. The manuscript is therefore part diary and part post-war memoir. It is a rich source of history from the perspective of one individual. If nothing else, it's a great story. As much as possible, I have tried to keep to the original manuscript and only made changes where absolutely necessary. For example, trying to make the language used more acceptable to a modern audience. The manuscript has been divided into three sections of roughly equal size, with the first covering from the preface to letter 7, the second from letter 8 to the end of letter 16, and section 3 covering letter 17 to 24, with some brief closing words to wrap it up. So I hope I've piqued your interest, and we'll get started. We begin with the preface of this manuscript, what I have titled Dear CB, A Soldier's Experience of War Through Letters. Since I left the United Kingdom on August 4th, 1940, bound overseas on active services, I have written many hundreds of letters home to my mother and my friends. When I decided to write this book, I wondered what form it should take. After reasonable concentration, I felt that instead of writing it in chapters, I would present it in the form of letters written back to the UK, thus providing a chain of continuity from the time I left to the date of grace, 8th May 1944. These letters are not originals but imitations, and therefore I suppose lose much of their value. It is impossible for me to collect and collate letters I sent back to England. I know I cannot write well, but I am sure my original correspondence is far warmer and more lively than that contained in the following pages. Possibly what I have written down here may be more interesting, for I have been able to set down facts and events of which I could make no previous mention. What the censor would not pass some time ago, he passes now.
the first and the last two of these imaginary letters to my mother, the remainder to an unknown entity called CB, for crashing bore, probably. These letters range from Freetown Harbor to General Sikorsky's visit to Iraq, from dive bombers in Tobruk to Paradise Alley in Mosul, a trip in a tank and a voyage in a destroyer. I hope you enjoy reading them more than I did writing them. And incidentally, I'm sorry the writing is so bad. Letter 1. Mother dearest, last night was my last on British soil. I woke early and looked out of the tent I'd been sharing with Oscar Greenwood. Our heavy kit, there was plenty of it, was stacked outside waiting for the lorries to come and take it down to the docks. We had a picnic breakfast in the factory of which Myrna's father is a director. After finishing it, we put our knives and forks in our haversacks, our last meal on English soil. About half past eight, we moved off, the first big reinforcement for the 1st Cavalry Division in Palestine. So many times we thought we were about to start this journey. So many times our departure has been delayed. It was strange to be leaving at last. You know, I've read a lot of books about the last war and even seen a number of films too. The fact of leaving for overseas was presented dramatically always dramatically. As people said goodbye and soldiers took their last farewell of the English coast, a lump would come to the throat. One day I was on leave in London before Dunkirk. I saw some ORs, infantrymen, waiting at Victoria Station to go back to France. They were in battle dress and they looked rather unhappy. A lump came to my throat then. No lump came today. I suppose the novelty of it all formed a kind of barrier around one's sentiment. We must have looked a strange mob as we marched through the docks. None of our cavalrymen have ever worn battle dress. When not in breeches, they wear the old type of tunic and slacks, and that's how they marched out of England today. Marching was hardly the word for what we did through the docks, but to say it was a shamble would not be quite fair. A few men started to sing, but not many of them followed. I don't think there was a general impression of sadness at leaving England, though every man had a mother, wife, or sweetheart whom he was leaving behind. It was a feeling of gladness that at last, at last after so many delays, we were really going. None of us knew what ship it was, though the rumour had gone around that it was the Empress of Britain. We found this to be true when we got to the docks. It took several hours to get us aboard. Certainly she's a big ship and she's still painted white. I don't suppose there's been a chance to camouflage her yet. The men's quarters aren't bad, although I suppose as the war proceeds they will get worse. I'm on a deck and share a large modern cabin with Kenneth McAlworth, Gavin Simmons, and Oscar Greenwood. We have a bathroom to ourselves, and our next-door neighbors are John Warrender, Anthony Goodall, Tim Fitzgeorge Parker, and Ted Robinson. There is luxury here, all right, for a trooper, although the decorations aboard seem to be in the worst possible taste. Our room is entirely in black paneling, and so is the bathroom. We are to get hot seawater to bathe in, and there are special cakes of soap for this. I've been down to see the men's quarters. Some of them are four or six or eight to a cabin, and some are down in the open lower decks. It's going to be hot down there. I wonder if the Bosch will come over. There are several liners like ourselves lying out in the Mersey, and what a target. It seems strange, too, in Liverpool. How many times I've left from this port to go to the Isle of Man back to school? I'm afraid this writing isn't very good, Mother dear, but I'm in haste, and although I feel emotional now, I don't feel like writing emotionally. But thanks for all you've done for me. At times I've not only been a trouble to you, but an awful worry too, I know. My last desire is to make you feel sad now, and that is why I wanted to write about the embarkation. 
but I hate to leave you behind with my father dead and so few friends and so little luxury. Who knows when I'll be back or what the future has in store for us. Who can tell? It seems a little cowardly, too, to be leaving England just as this time with the Germans on the doorstep, and here we are, setting off in a luxury liner for a trip that will take us halfway around the world. This is a new adventure, the biggest of them all so far. I don't suppose anything will happen to us on this trip. Somehow I don't think they'll let the Germans sink the old Empress, though she's not so old. I must finish as they've come to collect our last letters now, and my thoughts will be with you. God bless you and look after England. I'll write often. All my love, Stuart. Letter 2. Mother dearest, there is a calm sea this afternoon and we are a few days out from home. As I have more time and feel more settled in my mind, the letter I write you will not be so scrappy as the last. I'm sorry about that letter, but it was written in rather a rush. I suppose by now you've overcome the first numbness at my actually being out of the country and are preparing yourself for the long steady wait before I go home again. Because I am coming home, I feel sure of it. We are all very comfortable here and are fed like fighting cocks. At first, after all the clamour there is back in England about wasting shipping space, we were pretty sick to think that the holds of this vast vessel were cluttered up with grapefruits. But then we realised that probably its purpose is to build up our morale. When you ship troops away from their own country and send them to they don't know where or what, it's just as well to take their minds off their sorrows by feeding them up. The convoy looks rather a wonderful sight. There are about 16 ships. Six of these are fast liners and the rest are cargo boats. They say we're going to Freetown and that from there the liners are going to go on by themselves, leave the slower ships to follow on behind. There's some destroyers here and a cruiser. The most beautiful ship is the one funneled liner the Andy. She is the most graceful thing I've ever seen on the water, far lovelier than a film star in a swimming pool. She was going on the South American run before the war started, but was turned into a troop ship. It's the kind of ship one sees advertised in Esquire. We have a lot of time to ourselves. We take it in turns to lecture the men on various subjects during the morning. We do PT before breakfast. In the afternoon, there are some voluntary games such as basketball and deck hockey. They say they're, they're soon going to start organizing a band so that it can play to the troops during the afternoon and to officers at night. A good percentage of the officers are from the cavalry and yeomanry regiments, though there are a number of people of our own age who are going to join the RBs and the KRR regular battalions. Then there is a batch of officers belonging to the Royal Army Pay Corps and a dozen doctors, some Highland officers and a few others. There seem to be a large number of nurses aboard this vessel, and it's honestly true to say that they are not very attractive, although one or two of them are quite pretty. There's one tall girl who is not the belle of the ship whom they call the Duchess. These girls are, however, quite clearly going to be, be made much of by all who have not left their hearts behind. The uniform of the British nursing sister could not be less glamorous. It's difficult to know how to fill up one's time. Already I've read a lot. It's always the bar, or rather, the lounge, where one can buy a drink for an amazingly small cost. They will not allow us to sunbathe on board or to wear bathing trunks. I suppose with so many nurses aboard, they fear it's, it will corrupt our morals and theirs. I think in spite of restrictions, this boat will see a thing or two before the voyage is out, but I'd imagine by now it pretty blasé. The wireless is not used often, as apparently the Germans might pick us up on it and so we only get the six o'clock news. It seems the Germans are beginning at last their long expected raids. 
Everybody thinks of his own family, and yet everyone is sure that his own people will escape. It seems that you're all locked up in a sort of cage. The censorship rules are very strict. We're not allowed, for instance, to mention the weather, or if and when we cross the equator. It seems inconceivable that our people, who are obviously know that we've left England, think we are heading for some secret destination in the North Pole. Keep your chin up and pray for me. I know you will. I only hope that one of the things I'll learn to do myself was I'm away is to pray. Something else I'd like to do would be to write, but I expect I'll never get down to it. I've heard all sorts of people say they would like to write and then produced all sorts of excuses for not doing so, but I only know of one's way, and that is to write. I know of the path. I wish I had the strength to walk along it. I long to see you again, but as for the UK generally, everything here is still fresh and not yet nostalgic. Love, Stuart. Letter 3. Dear CB, This has been written in the port of Freetown, capital of Sierra Leone. Yesterday, in the earliest morning, we sighted land for the first time since leaving Great Britain. Just after breakfast, our cabin steward informed me that we had two minesweepers out in front, and a little while later, two seaplanes came out and drove monotonously overhead. Some little time after this, we saw the coastline. The day was not the best for visibility. It was coolish, cloudy, and humid. We had arrived at Sierra Leone in the wet season. Our first sight of the coast was quite memorable. In a way, it seemed slightly mystical. I not preconceived notions as to what the Sierra Leone coast would look like. Generally, I do form an idea which provides an interesting comparison with actuality. The horizon seemed sort of hazy, and a sea mist that bathed in this shroud was the looming outline of a mountain. Then another slowly appeared, and another. They stood there, away in the distance, like great guardians of a mightier range behind. Gradually, we drew nearer and nearer the coast, and we were using our glasses so much that our eyes became strained by the use of them. As we came into the harbour, through a boom, the convoy must have looked wonderful. Ship after ship lay behind us resembling a crocodile. The sky cleared, became blue instead of grey, the town lay twinkling and looking tropical with a slight touch of civilization. On our starboard side, how nautical we're all becoming, we passed a small lighthouse and a wireless station. Natives were collected in a group waving to us. Next came a little lagoon. The beautiful sandy beach bent into a horseshoe. Then the town, quite large. We're not allowed off the vessel, and therefore, unfortunately, there's no chance of doing any personal exploration. The town is laid out quite spaciously and seems to have many fine houses, probably those of English residents and thousands of neat little native ones. Along the quay are big stone wharfs, one belonging to the United Africa Company. Gurkhas, roads, and open spaces are dotted about the place. Behind the town are several large buildings, I think barracks, a university, and a hospital. At the far end of the town by the river and enclosed by well-kept grass lawns is a big red brick mansion, English style. I suppose it's the governor's house. At the back of the town is green hills, lusciously green, and dotted heavily with trees, and beyond the hills are treetop mountains. On the port side, the view is absolutely different. It is flat, lonely-looking, and also full of vegetation. The bright greenness of everything is accounted for by the recent heavy rainfalls. Upstream lines lies the Roquel River, leading into darkest Africa and God knows where. We lie here for oil and water. Soon after our arrival, natives came out to us in their canoe-like boats and remained alongside continually. They are mostly young men, coal black and of an amazing physique. They all speak a kind of broken English quite well. They spend their time diving for money and yelling to the troops on board. 
Those who try to barter things or to sell fruit are hosed by the ship's police. This kind of horseplay has been going on all day long and has caused tremendous excitement. There are lots of merchantmen further back behind us in the harbour, and many of them have black crews. The oil tanker that refueled us has a Chinese crew and white officers. One of the native bumboat men had a monkey he wanted to sell. The wretched animal sat shivering in the corner of the boat, getting wetter and wetter as more and more water was, shi was shipped. The owner of the boat, a grinning buck native, started off by asking for a pound. He went to pick up the monkey but got snapped at and scratched and retired ruefully to think things out. Every time he went to get hold of the monkey, he was attacked and consequently ended up by offering it for sale for five shilling two pence. Anyway, we're not allowed pets. These men wear the weirdest clothes. Naked except for loincloths, they offer to sell their sisters on shore for half a crown. They get up to amazing tricks, tossing their paddles into the air and catching them, doing weird and wonderful salutes with their hands and pulling absurd faces at the police who are turning hoses on. From time to time, naval patrol boats pass by with black sailors wearing the white tropical kit of His Majesty's Navy. Rolling down the green hills, there is a waterfall, a white streak slashing the green. Eight great black kites, I mean birds, not planes, flew menacingly over the hills in the afternoon. And whilst I was playing shuffleboard, a butterfly came and lay down on the deck, wings expanded. It was white and gold and completely different from anything I'd seen in Europe. Sent you a cable this afternoon. We were allowed to send one. Yours, Stuart. Letter 4. Dear CB, The morning we were due to see land and enter Cape Town Harbour, I went up on deck at 6 o'clock. That was two days ago. Sun didn't rise until 7.15. At about a quarter to seven, we saw land clearly, miles away on the port side. The sea was a dark blue, the sky was deep grey, and the two stretched away but failed to meet at the horizon. Away there on that distant horizon, a great long range of mountains rose up from the sea. Their peaks just met the edge of the sombre greyness of the sky. The mountains were, were wrapped in colour, a mixture of soft pink and orange. Between the sea and the sky, this brilliant strip of colour ribboned itself on the horizon, silhouetting the long range of mountains. The sun rose up behind them. I watched this scene. It grew ever closer. It lost its likeness to a fairy tale. It became reality. At breakfast, speculation was rife as to what time we'd get into Table Bay, how long, we, how long we would remain in the bay, what time we'd dock, and whether or not any shore leave would be granted today. On deck again, one became aware of the excitement. Most of us had never been to South Africa before. Everything was much nearer now. The Holland Hottentots Mountains showed up clearly, and the world-famous Table Mount stood there looking just what she was supposed to be, and not quite as high as some of her neighbours. I'll always think of Table Mountain as something very feminine, for she stands out there behind the city, mothering the city. Well, there was Table Mountain, and behind her on the range lay the tablecloth of cloud, white and dormant. Last night I saw the same tablecloth, a pure pink given its colour by the setting sun. Slowly we came into Table Bay. We passed Sea Point, and we lay outside the harbour. After weeks at sea and months of living in a country where petrol rationing it was stringent, it was a change to observe cars again, rushing down roads, driving in the Union is on the left-hand side, like Britain. The sea was blue, the air was light, and the sun quite strong. Out there was the city, clean, roofed, spacious, white, and apparently lacking in messy industrialism. And grandly and broadly behind lay Table Mountain, rugged, rocky, and square. It was later on that I saw the soft green slopes and the pine trees. 
On our port side lay the Holland Hottentots, and around us were ships at anchor and liners like ourselves, getting ready to move into harbour. By one o'clock we berthed and tied up. As one of the ship's three orderly officers for the day, I was able to go on the quay and supervise the policing. Quite a number of South African troops were on the quay and were in drill uniform, all of them wearing shorts. A number of white deck foremen were around in a collection of natives and coloured dockers. We threw pennies to the latter, who fought like mad to collect the money, rolling about in the dust, biting and kicking one another. After lunch, the shore leave began. About 2.30 previous to this, I'd been into a bookstall on the quay and phoned Flora and Hamish. The men poured off the grey plank improperly organised parties and were marched away. This took until about 3.30. I went up to my cabin and shaved and got a lift in a naval officer's car to the dock gates, where I met Hamish, Flora and the bunch. They drove me to the city club where we had tea and afterwards I went for a walk in the gardens with them opposite the club. There I saw the residence of the Governor-General. It was long and rather Afrikan. Although it wasn't a bungalow, it had a very bungalow effect. Nearby was the public library, the largest building I saw in Cape Town with the exception of the hospitals. We walked for a few moments through the park, which was beginning to be a galaxy of colour owing to the commencement of South African spring. British soldiers, quiet and curious, were wandering about. They received particular attention from some of the South African native troops. Mostly the park was peopled by Europeans, but here and there one would find fat old coal-black mammies somewhat similar to those in Virginia. They waddled down the pass, and there were young coloured men with padded shoulders to their jackets. My first impression of the city was bound to be superficial in the extreme, but it was confirmed by later impressions. There is a distinct American influence. The city gives an impression of freshness and newness. There is an air of hustle and as though life should be lived at a quick tempo. At least that's the way it seems after coming from Britain. American cars are everywhere. The newspapers have excessively detailed social columns listing people who arrived into town the previous day on the coach trains. No Sunday papers, but instead special Saturday supplements. American advertisements for American products. An atmosphere of fairly recently acquired wealth. Problems of race burning and smoldering in a canopy of apparent calm. But here and there British flags fly. British banks prosperously nestle into streets and as usual they are managed by Scotsmen. English is the principal language and is spelt and pronounced as the English pronounce and spell their own language. The clubs I entered were permeated by the essence of England. British novels were on sale in the shops. You felt that Cape Town was Britain and wanted to be British as long as being British did not entail the need for hypocrisy and for inefficiency. Cars kept to the left-hand side of the road, and everybody drank tea and ate hot buttered toast, and British ships filled the harbour. The newspapers carried a lot of British news. The Bohemia, Cape Town's only nightclub, is typical of those in London, whereas Kelvin Grove is typical of the best type of American country club. Most of the continental atmosphere, naturally enough, comes from Holland. Many of the city's finest buildings were of the old and new Dutch architecture. The informality of everything, the highly coloured advertisement hoarding boxes in the street, the flower cellars, the terrace and the cafes, the Dutch faces. Of course, behind all of this, there lies a welter of political, imperial and racial problems that look like blowing the Union sky high again, either during or after the war. We'll see what we'll Letter see. 5. Dear CB, 
As a great convoy center, Cape Town is going to come into the news, and so I'm going to continue the letter. I wrote yesterday whilst everything is still fresh in my mind. On the way back to the ship, after my first afternoon ashore, we drove through the Malay Quarter. Apparently, years and years ago, many Malays came to the Cape Town. It may have been something to do with Calico. I'm not quite sure. They'd never mix much with the coloured folk or the natives and have remained rather aloof, living their life in their own part of the city and causing no trouble. As no civilians are allowed through the dock gates, I left Flora and Hamish and walked back to the E of B to carry on with my duties as orderly officer. The other two orderly officers, the Rasta is worked, Rasta is worked more or less alphabetically, Tim Fitzgeorge, Parker, and Ted Robinson were about the only people in to dinner, and we all wanted to sit down at the same table instead of sitting by ourselves. The entire skeleton staff of the dining saloon was soon in an uproar about this. The stewards went into a terrific huddle, came up to us from time to time and politely remonstrated. Their objection seemed to be that if any of the others were to come in and find strangers sitting at their table, they would be held to pay. As the other two were at my own table, I couldn't see what all the fuss was about, but the stewards looked surly for the rest of the meal. Before dinner, Tim and I had a sit in the appalling cafe lounge, reading the personal column and the obituary notices of the Cape Argos. The obituary notices were rather funny, most of them and a little pathetic. I've clipped some of them out and am sending them on to you. You'll see they consist of little couplets. Apart from our own convoy liners in dock, there is the very racy-looking Cape Town castle, and out in the bay a smart-looking Japanese merchantman, which plies between South America and South Africa. I went to look at the Polish liner Battery. She's not very impressive close to, but out at sea she looks a grand sight. They say we're leaving her behind because of engine trouble. Nightfall and what a difference there was from England. For one whole year everything had been blacked out at night. London, Edinburgh, Colchester, Liverpool, Weedens, Chomonsley, everywhere I've been stationed. Life was a perpetual blackout. Every night at sea, there has been a darkened ship. We took a walk on deck and saw what seemed to be fairyland. The city was a blaze of colour. Lights, lights, lights all the way to heaven, it seemed. The red flow of advertisements, the mobile lights of cars and trains. Our own ship was aflame with colour. Portholes were open, electricity threw its glare on the sea, and the sea responded, became more mystical than ever. Imagine spending a year in gloom, and then this. Next morning, I was up early and ashore by nine o'clock. A lanky young American in a Pontiac car gave me a lift, went straight to the Standard Bank of South Africa where I obtained some money, and then returned immediately to the ship where I passed on the information as to where the others could get some much-needed cash. I gave Angel, my servant, his instructions for purchases in the town and left in the taxi with Major Roosevelt, the president's cousin, Robinson and Morley. We parted in the Adderley Street and I caught an electric train out to Newlands. The train went along the foot of Table Mount and past beautiful hospital, which I, which I thought somewhat Scottish. I walked for a few moments and came to my aunt's house. The longest drive led to the house, which by South African standard was a fair size and colored white with very simple lines. My aunt employed a native gardener and native chauffeur. The latter had just left to join the army the day previously and not yet been replaced. He and a lot of his friends had fought in the last war and were now joining the newly formed Coloured Corps. This morning I spent in strolling round the gardens, drinking tea and writing letters. You've already read my remarks about the censorship aboard this ship. I left the letters with my aunt who promised to post them the day after the Empress sailed to send a cable to my mother 
saying Stuart here. I could write pages about every small incident during the day, but I haven't got the time to write it, and I doubt if you have to read it. We had an early lunch and drove past Hoot Bay, out to the Cape of Good Hope and Cape Point. From here, the, from here there was a magnificent view. Below us lay the calm, rich blue sea of False Bay, Simmons Town, and Kalk Bay. The sky was a Cambridge blue and a practically cloudless. On the other side of the bay, rising sheer from the sea, were the Holland Hottentot Mountains. It was a sight I will not forget, ever. Motoring back a different way, we stopped to have tea at the majestic hotel Kalk Bay, and we passed the cottage where Cecil Rhodes died, and next to it the house of the recently deceased Sir Abe Bailey. I saw the vineyards at the back of the mountain, and the race course where Hamish is an honorary steward, and so back to the house where I had a bath and shaved. It was strange to hear on the news that England was being bombed night and day by the enemy planes in mass formations. There was old England, wounded and licking her wounds and wondering why, and here and was I sitting on a couch 6,000 miles away, sipping sherry. To me it seemed fantastic enough that, bombers should be fought, that bombs should be falling at all on London, but to be so far away and surrounding so little touched by the war seemed to be irony indeed, but circumstances will certainly change. Later we drove to collect a girl and then went to dine at the only place one can dine in Cape Town other than the hotels, the Delmonico. Then we visited the Bohemia and afterwards drove out to Kelvin Grove, where there was a dance on. Some of the Cape Town bells were very, very lovely. The standard beauty seems to be tall, have chestnut hair, hazel eyes, slightly suntanned sun face, and a few attractive freckles. Got back to the ship at Tattoo. We pulled out into the bay at about midday, but before that, Ted Robinson and myself paid visits to a crude score. We pulled out into the bay at about midday, but before that, Ted Robinson and I paid a visit to inquire after two of our men who had been killed in a car smash the night before. That was the tragedy I referred to earlier. They borrowed a car, smashed it, and died in hospital. As I write this, we're on our way round to Simmons Town, and I find I've written nothing about the wonderful organized hospitality that the civilian population arranged for the troops. There were cars, parties, and tours. It was an amazing show. Heaven knows where you'll get the next letter from. Yours, Stuart. Letter 6. Dear CB, These last few months have produced a life of contrast, if nothing else. I've now been in Palestine for two weeks, and write this from a little wooden hut where Michael Laycock and I live. We're in a small camp surrounded by barbed wire, and we've got about 70 men here, but more of this later. After racing up the Red Sea, and it was hot, we disembarked at Suez. This took two or three days. The pay people came aboard and gave us a lecture about our allowances, and we were given forms to fill in, and there was a staff officer looking very smooth from GHQ, and he addressed us on the importance of security. What he said was obviously true, that international Cosmopolitan communities such as those that are to be found in Egypt and Palestine are riddled with spies. He also told us where we'd be going. The Rifle Brigade 60th and other infanteers to the IBD for onward transmission to the Western Desert. The Cavalry Division officers to Palestine. The ship was soon full of rumors as to what had happened to various units. Certain representatives had come down to... The ship was soon full of rumors as to what had happened to various units. Certain representatives had come down to Cavdiv, and we learned that some regiments had lost or were losing their horses. The Nottinghamshire Yeomanry had been about the first people to lose theirs, and the regiment, 
so we heard was now doing coastal defense and searchlight work. Since arrival, I found that this is not quite true. At last, we got off the ship and landed in the town of Suez at Port Tufik. We passed an Australian destroyer whose bearded sailors were swimming in the sea. Rather trivial sentence that last one, but still. Rather trivial sentence that last one, but still. As we had a couple of hours to spend before the train pulled out, I and some of the others went to the French club on the side of the canal. Approximately at five o'clock, the train chugged out. The amazing thing is that it ever bothered to go at all. The station was dirty and the surrounding warehouses were stacked with war material. Up and down the platform were hundreds of flying festive natives, now referred to by all of us as wogs, screeching at the top of their voices. We pushed on, swaying slightly through the outskirts of Suez. Dust began to fall. Our first sight of the desert came to us on our left-hand side. It did not appear to be very romantic just here. No one felt as though the spirit of Rudolf Valentino was across there in the sand. We passed an aerodrome where there were some gladiators. On the right was the Suez Canal. At each station we were plagued by small boys running up and down. These natives were offering gazuzas, fizzy lemonade for sale, stale chocolate and hard-boiled eggs. One threw them coins, a wild scramble would immediately start. At half past nine we pulled into Kantara. Kantara is the railway station where one changes for the Palestinian train. We dismounted and crossed the canal on a ferry. Disorder seemed to reign everywhere. At Kantar, however, we were all officers and ORs, given a meal at NAAFI before boarding the Palestinian train. This was a special train, and so was devoid, therefore, of the usual sleeping cars. All the first-class compartments were swiftly gone, so many of us quickly settled ourselves in the second class. I couldn't go to sleep and stood for about an hour in the corridor looking out the window. There was a full moon which turned the desert to silver. In the end, I went back to the compartment and fell into a troubled sleep. Real romance was just outside the train when I woke up. The sun had just risen and the blue sky was overhead. Outside, trying to race the train, were two Bedouins on white Arab ponies. These men really did look as though they came out of a Hollywood film. They were carrying old Mansur rifles and had bandoliers over their shoulders. A little later, we arrived in Gaza famous battle center of the last war. All Gaza appeared to be was a few old Arab houses stuck on the top of a hill, surrounded by olive trees. Here we stopped for a little while and then pushed on. The country was becoming more interesting, more fertile. The first orange groves were beginning to put in an appearance, very colorful. We stopped at Lids for breakfast. There was no comparison between the cleanliness, tidiness, and orderliness of the Palestinian stations and the Egyptian ones. In the background were the Blue Mountains of Judea. At lunchtime, after passing through the orange groves for mile after mile, we arrived in Haifa. This is a clean white city built up on a hill overlooking the Mediterranean. We were rested here for the day, the officers staying in hotels and the men at the staging camp. We were allowed to send telegrams from here, the civilian post office, though naturally they went through censor before transmission. Next morning we were all sorted out into our regimental drafts, set off for our future. Officers and men for the Yorkshire Dragoons and the Sherwood Rangers sh shared two buses and for two and a half hours uh, we toured the Palestinian countryside. We called out the Dragoons first and arrived at our own regiment, Oscar Greenwood and myself, and about half past ten. The first officer we met was John Wel Welters, and then one by one several others from the regiment is split up. We are now doing 
local guard duties and local defense, and there's a battery in Cyprus. Regiment headquarters is at Seraphand. Spent four days at Seraphand, one of the most important reasons being to get our KD shorts and shirts made by the regiment tailor. Oscar Greenland went to the battery. These batteries still exist for the time we were supposed to become gunners. And I down to a battery at Acquire. Here I relived Michael Parrish, who was going to Cyprus. Regarding a new aerodrome under construction, there are just the two of us officers here and about 70 men. There's a camp of Jewish workmen not far away. It's very hot and there's lots of flies. We do PT every day and play basketball and train in the mornings. Well, so long for little. Yours, Stuart. Letter 7. Dear CB, TPR Ansel is hardly a treasure, but nevertheless, I'm glad I've got him. We moved from Acquire to Tel Aviv and spent about two months in that astonishing city. I'm now writing this on the shores of Lake Tiberias, where Angel and I are spending ten days on a job. I'd like to tell you about Angel, for he's an interesting piece of work. He was in my troop at Edinburgh, a slim, young, not bad-looking chap. When he did speak, which was quite often, it was with a North American accent. During afternoon lectures, he would be sitting at the back of the room, a cigarette dangling from his lips and his cap on one side of his head. Never appeared to be taking any interest in what was going on, and somehow always managed to know the answer when questioned. He was about the best horseman in the troop, though none too fond of grooming, but I was very pro-Canadian. I thought I'd ask him to be my servant. He said he would be. This was when we got, a, got as far as being dumped down at Aintree Racecourse. So we set off from Chalmontley Park together to do our short-term service with the Czechs. Angel was not, and still is not, the perfect servant, but he is one of the most likable, interesting people I've met so far in this war. I won't forget how amusing he was when he broadcast back to Canada through the courtesy of Jerry Wilmot. It's quite impossible to put over Bill Angel's brand of humor on paper unless one can capture his Canadian accent, which is most engaging. In Canada, he won a medal for saving somebody's life from drowning. His father is, I think, a small farmer, without much money, and the way Angel tells the story is this. He wanted Bally to go abroad, and his father wouldn't let him. In the end, his father gave him a small sum of money in order to go to England, there for a little while, and then return to Canada. Bill Angel set off with a friend in a cargo ship. On board this cargo ship, there was a bunch of American and Canadian volunteers who were going off to fight in the Spanish Civil War. They were organized by a gentleman calling himself, I believe, Mackenzie Patterson. Bill Angel made a few acquaintances amongst this crowd, didn't think anything more about it. When he got to Plymouth, he decided that Paris was so near and yet so far, and so he'd better go and have a look at Paris. So on they went to Cherbourg and from Cherbourg to Paris. In Paris, Angel and his friend hit the high spots. The day before he had made up his mind to leave France for England, he was down practically to his last penny. Same day at the International Exhibition, he bumped into some of the volunteer boys. Bill Angel's problem was solved. He would go off and fight in Spain. He says at that time he wasn't much worried on what side he fought. So off he goes to the International Battalion Office in Paris and joins up. He fought in Spain and became a machine gunner, reaching the rank of sergeant. He was wounded twice. After being wounded a second time, he thought he'd had enough of Spain and its international brigade. He quit. He escaped to Gibraltar and lay seriously ill in the hospital there with some queer disease. He was there for weeks. In the end, he managed to get back to England, where his first job was packer to a famous military tailor. That's why whatever else his imperfections may be, he can certainly fold clothes. Then after that, he went to the Army and Navy stores in the embossing department. After leaving there, he became a chauffeur. Before the war broke out, he had concluded one or two other minor escapades. 
As soon as the war commenced, Angel joined up and found himself in the cavalry depot at Edinburgh. Here he proceeded to get married. He got married to a girl of Italian descent, and no sooner had he married her than her father and another were put into an internment camp. Whilst we were in Cheshire, we had endless trouble over this, and one of the weekends that I went down to London, Angel was sent post-haste up to Edinburgh to deal with this domestic problem. Fortunately, he settled them. While I was in Cheshire, I was given a small black Maria-looking vehicle, palmed off on me instead of the station wagon that I was supposed to have. When I used to go and see Mira, Angel used to drive me up to the house and then sit in the servants' quarters and hear all the gossip. On the ship coming out, here he was a ringleader of the illicit gambling school, but never really got into any trouble. His spirit is too independent for him to be a good Batman, but he is a good man to have around. We only arrived here this morning. After we left Haifa, we came into the hill country, and I realized that the northern part of Palestine has far more charm and beauty than the south. One sees less of the army, less of the Jew, fewer of those monstrous orange groves, and many more hills, almost mountains. We passed through Nazareth. Although my impressions were superficial, Nazareth was one of the few places that seemed to come up to expectations. We were heading for Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee. Ever since we left Haifa, we'd We'd been coming closer to the hills. Now we were amongst them. We were climbing higher and higher. In a lifetime, one sees many views which at the time are believed one still remember forever. In a lifetime, one sees many views which at the time are believed one will remember forever. Then common sense and experience tells us that most of them will be quickly erased. A few will remain dim memories still. These perpetual memories I won't bother to enumerate, but they were added to when I saw Lake Galilee. I've cursed at Palestine and accused it of being a disappointing country. When I saw Galilee, I knew that a journey halfway around the world had not been in vain. As soon as we topped the crest of the hill and I saw what lay beneath me, I was glad that I had come so far. My soul was filled with beauty. When I saw that great blue lake, 13 miles long and 7 wide, lying far down below me with a surrounding wall of high hills, I felt that I had always been meant to see it. In every direction there were hills. There still are. In the distance, one sees old Harman sway there over the border in Syria, then 10,000 feet in height. The sight of a mountain is a good thing to close this letter on, though I seem to have traveled a good way from TPR Angel, who is sitting not far away, cursing the mosquitoes. Yours, Stuart. That's the end of letter seven and concludes this first podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it, and we will move on to the next one shortly.